Living Room Logic. Okay, everyone. So welcome back to another episode of Living Room Logic. And today I have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Keith Gaynor. Now, he's an assistant professor in clinical psychology. He works a lot with psychosis. And today we're going to talk a lot about mental health. And there's just a heads up for anyone um, who may be sensitive to the topic that we're going to be talking a lot about mental health. And then we're going to dig into psychosis and the way that we look at psychosis within the realm of mental health. The main reason that I kind of put this together and that I want to talk about this was because a lot of the ways that we look at mental health in general is as maybe extremes or disordered ways that we usually exist, whether it could be a mood, whether it could be the way we eat, or it could be anxiety and things like that. Keith, these would be very normal experiences that we would normally feel, right? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, a lot of people, when they think about anxiety or depression, are able to relate that to their own experience. There'll be loads of kids heading off to the Leaving Cert now in the next couple of weeks. They'll know what anxiety is. And so conceptualizing, well, what would an anxiety disorder be? It feels like, well, it's just an extension of that. It's something like that that keeps on going or goes to a higher level. So I think most of us are able to picture what something like that would be. I think when it comes to talk about psychosis, there's a little bit of work or a little bit of imagination we have to bring to it. But actually, we're able to picture this too. And we're able to understand it from our own experiences as well. And it's more normal maybe than people uh, understand. So I'm kind of hoping today that that's some of the stuff we get to talk about. Yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that. And just to kind of get a baseline, because I think we all have a good grasp on how things like depression and anxiety looks, but could you give us a broad outline of what psychosis is? Yeah, so psychosis in a word is losing touch with reality. And mostly what that presents as is people either hearing voices or perceiving things that aren't there or having beliefs that aren't true. So mostly kind of beliefs like paranoia or maybe a a grandiose belief. And I suppose there's a really important proviso to that is having those experiences and having a dip in occupational or social functioning. That it's not enough to have those experiences on their own for someone to say that's an illness. Actually, what's important is, yes, this is distressing to me and it's stopping me doing my normal life. And because once we start talking about, well, what's a normal belief? What's an unusual belief? How do we decide those things? Actually, there is no line. There's there's nobody can say that if you believe in UFOs, you are perfectly entitled to believe in UFOs. Lots of people do. Maybe the majority of the world doesn't, but it doesn't make it pathological in any way. That's really interesting, even just a way to think about it, because maybe to a degree it gets, it might get a little philosophical of what is it to believe in your own perception of reality and things like that. Uh, It must be very difficult to actually pull that apart and actually try to decipher when someone just has a particular belief and as opposed to when someone's particular belief is pathological. How would that kind of intermingle when you're actually trying to speak to someone? Because I suppose we live in an age where there's a lot of different opinions going around. And then some people may just believe something based off information that may not even be true. But that's not a pathological thing. That's uh, outside in. How do you determine when this is inside out? And I think it's, it's probably even a step further than that, so that we all have unusual beliefs. Mm. This is actually a really, you, you may believe lots things that you don't have a firm scientific grasp that they're true. Uh, for instance, the most common would be religion. The majority of the people on the you know on earth believe in something that they can't see. And it's a really healthy, helpful, 
positive part of their lives and the lives of their community. And that's been the way all the way through humanity. So the entire history of humanity, religion has been a core tenet of, of human existence. And yet it's something that can't be seen. And some people may have experiences that others don't. So just to take that as a really broad example of where we're not sitting here as these perfectly rational creatures who only believe in logic. You know, actually, we're kind of irrational creatures. And we believe in lots of things that we're not able to point to the evidence towards. And that's right and normal and proper. But it is deeply philosophical. And it's deeply cultural. And yet, who gets to decide? Who says, yeah, that, that's okay. Mm, that's less okay. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and so it, the power in society is really important. And we would have seen that, well, in lots of countries. But in Ireland over the last hundred years is who got labeled as unwell and then who received treatment were often people who are weaker, more vulnerable, or were very much suited society to have them, you know, out of the way in some way. So psychosis touches on all of those things. And what you find, the more you study it, is there won't be a defining line in the same way we can find with a physical health illness. You know, we're all experts now from COVID, but in the same way you took a test and your antigen, you know, tested positive, and okay, there we go. Well, and the PCR, it's slightly better. So we'll go to a PCR and it tested positive. Okay, you have it. And actually, this is much more cultural, much more social, and much more philosophical on the one hand. And on the other hand, then there's other, there's people in real distress whose lives are really being hurt by the things they're experiencing. And we can't get so lost in our own philosophizing that we're not providing something helpful for those people. It's very tricky then, because then do you dig into different cultures may have different lines as to where psychosis begins. Like, uh, to use an extreme example, you could, where does superstitions begin and completely lost beliefs end? What about people burning witches in the 1500s where they simply might have believed certain things. So I guess out of interest, when you go to the clinical books, when you go to like the DSM-5 and things like that, I'm assuming like most of these things are that it's imperfect and it doesn't fully capture the spectrum that most mental health disorders actually lie on. But what would be, let's say, like the three most common things that you would expect? So the kind of core symptoms, you know, most commonly are hearing voices and having unusual beliefs or irrational beliefs that can't be shifted by argument, that there isn't a kind of leeway in it. And you may very strongly believe in a political party, but you have leeway to see, well, actually, that other thing was okay. You're able to see some other side to it. And then that dip in functioning, that the social and occupational functioning dips. And that those are the core kind of things that you'd see in DSM when you're exploring it with people. And so half my job is in UCD. The other half is in an early intervention psychosis clinic. So I do a lot of clinical work. And so people will come in and they'll tell me, you know, I'm really frightened. My neighbors are bugging my phone. Uh, every time I leave the house, I think I'm going to be attacked. And, you know, and so on. And, you know, and then they explain, well, why the neighbors are doing this. And then, you know, there's a very long and complex story as to why the neighbors are doing this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And there's a little bit of detective work in actually finding out, is are the neighbors doing this? Are they living next door to the Kinnahins? You know, but actually, for the most part, the, the next door neighbor is a little old lady and there isn't something going on. But this person is deeply, deeply distressed by it. They're not able to go to the shops. They're not able to go to school. They're not, you know, they've dropped out of work. They've cut their social contacts. And, you know, this has become an all pervasive thought. They think about it kind of morning, noon and night. Okay. So it's kind of, it, it's not just every thought it's maybe they've latched onto a thought and maybe this detached thought is impacting their life and would this be singular would it always just be maybe the one anxiety that maybe people are out to get them or would it manifest in different ways within the one person or is it this again some people one way and other people others yeah but what generally because we're human beings you know even though there may be a theme to us people are out to get me mm. Then there are multiple, multiple, how is that happening today? How does that play out in work? Maybe work is okay, but how does it play out at home? You know, maybe home is okay, but how does it play out then in the pub or, you know, among friends? And so we're, we're thinking beings. If you really believed people are out to get you, you would spend a lot of time thinking about it. You would think of planning about it, trying to work it out, trying to solve it, to have a lot of behavior where you try and act to prevent it. And of course, the more behaviors that you do, actually, the worst that it's going to get and it's going to get more embedded but i'll go back one step if i can that's the dsm picture one of the amazing things about this field in the last 30 years is that that's based on people coming into clinics coming into hospitals and how they present is we've had proper epidemiological research across kind of large national cohorts and you find that that group is the minority actually the much larger group who hear things, see things that other people can't hear, believe things that other people don't believe, and aren't impacted. They go about their daily lives, their bank managers and teachers and all the rest, and they don't have that drop in functioning. So they never come to services. They're not distressed by their experiences, and they're living their lives perfectly happily. And so they don't meet any criteria for illness. And so Jim Van Oss is, is a Dutch psychiatrist. He's one of the leaders in this field. And so he, he described illness as a rare, poor outcome from psychotic experiences. And so we're starting to think of this now as a psychosis continuum rather than a psychotic illness on its own. And that fundamentally shifts our understanding of what health and illness are, ideas of what it is to be crazy or to be madness, you know, and also, well, what might cause this? And so the model that Van Oss puts forward, and there's a lot of evidence to back it up, is the idea of proneness, persistence, and impairment. Loads of us have proneness. We have little psychotic moments, little blips. More people have a persistence. Unusual experiences, it's part of their lives, but it doesn't impair them. And there's a small amount of people who find that distressing, find that overwhelming, and it does impair their lives. And those are the people who we need to support and look for mental health you know, supports in order to help. Wow. So it is like everything else that we were mentioning before, things like anxiety, things like depression. It is a part of our everyday life. But yeah. like blips is a good example because we absolutely all have had an evening or a moment or in the heat of an argument or when everything seems topsy-turvy, a moment of heightened 
extremes. Even if in the back of your head, you're kind of going, maybe not. You believe it at the time. You believe it and you back it. And it is your personality for that moment. It is your belief for that moment. And then it might come in waves. And that makes things a lot more complicated on your end. Because at that point, it it does just open up to being a spectrum, doesn't it? And it it again starts to get very complicated. And I think now one thing that does come to mind when we say something like psychosis or psychosis associated symptoms might be something we all experience. I think people might be a bit turned off by that because I think there's a huge taboo with mental health. And I would, from experience talking to people, I would associate that a lot more with things like psychosis than depression, for example, because I think they're fighting two different battles. There's a huge taboo against psychosis, um, maybe the ways it's been portrayed in media. But then with depression, it has a different battle where it's almost like, is this a real mental health problem? Blah, blah, blah. Aren't we all sad and things like that? But how do you, how would you communicate that to people to kind of say differently that psychosis is, it's not the way you think about it and that we have to redefine it in the culture how would you how would you try to explain that human side of the experience so i think some brilliant has happened in the last 20 years which is we've started talking about anxiety and depression and it's now an acceptable way of thinking about our experiences an acceptable thing to say you know to explain what was going on as i was depressed at that time and really it's only 20 years ago where that just wouldn't have been possible that, that would have been absolutely outside of the norms. No celebrity, no footballer, nobody in work. You couldn't have gone to your boss and said, you know, I'm depressed. And that's still really difficult. And so it brings up all those challenges around definition and severity and all those kind of questions. But those are questions that people are asking as opposed to it not, it had never even being, you know, asked about. So that, that has been extraordinary. But then it's, it has left a little bit of a hierarchy that there's still things we don't talk about. And one of them is psychosis. And it still has the taboo, as you say, of, you know, madness, of, of craziness, of, and I don't want that. I'm, I feel okay if I feel depressed. I can use that word, but I wouldn't want a psychosis or a schizophrenia or, you know, those sort of things. And that's okay. I mean, madness has had a taboo about it for all of human history. You know, we're working against thousands of years of of cultural taboo. And so we're not going to break it down in a decade. But I think there's something, the more we hear people's stories, and it takes enormous bravery for someone to come forward and go, these are my experiences. This is what how I've lived. This is how I live. And and I'm very very happy. This is me being the bank manager and Mm -hmm. hearing voices. This is me, you know, being the, you know, the teacher and having some unusual beliefs. That, you know, the more that those stories come out into just the, the popular world, the better able people are to understand what's going on. It doesn't seem like something that's other. It seems like actually something that, well, I mightn't have that because it's not everyone who's going to have it, but I, I can see how it might work. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I, I have a brilliant psychology colleague that I worked with for years and we had a shared office. And she was working away on this big 25-page report. It had taken weeks to put the report together. It was going to take hours to write. She wrote the whole thing, got you know, down to the last full stop, went to do it, and the report just disappeared. It just gone. Computer crashed. You know, so she gets, goes again, spends the entire afternoon trying to rewrite the report, rewrite the report. Hours later, she goes and 
almost down to the last sentence, the computer crashes again and the whole report is gone. And the first thought out of her mouth, girl sitting right beside her, was, I think IT are trying to delete my files. And in that, there was just this one perfect little paranoid thought just for that moment that IT were somehow watching her files and there was a guy who had a big delete yep. button in, you know, in the IT office. And But for that moment, that made total sense. Mm-hmm. And of course, it wasn't. We're just working with rubbish computers. It was a big file. It's a coincidence that the same thing happened twice. But as human beings, we don't really look for coincidences. We're not looking for statistical things that have a high likelihood of co-occurring. We're much more likely to put intention on it. We're much more likely to put motivation on it. We're much more likely to say, well, who's the person behind this rather than what's the statistical process? And so we're much more likely to find meaning, to find links, to try and work out how these things go together. And then, of course, that's easy for it to to bring us down a, a rabbit hole. That kind of introduces a lot of different things, because obviously then you start thinking about very rational thoughts. And like, I think there's a huge, perhaps cultural movement at the moment between what is blind faith in, let's say, a government and what is conspiracy thinking and what often turns out to be correct and what often turns out to be nonsense. And then a lot of biases, like survivorship biases that come along the way of, oh, well, we thought that. And the one thing that actually came true is the only thing we still talk about. It does kind of introduce a new thing of, is that maybe the strength that you may believe a conspiracy theory or that the strength that you may believe something, even if it has gaps, that's kind of a human experience of it. You're, you're, you're experiencing yourself connecting dots, even though you don't have all of the information. And you're just trying to put it together as humans do. That's what we do. That is, that's evolution. That's how we got here. That's how we got everything from the agricultural revolution from noticing, hey, if we only plant the good plants, we'll get better plants kind of thing. It's the same connecting of the dots, but perhaps on a, just on a different scale. I suppose it goes back to the philosophical side. It is very complicated. And I think then when you look at the people who end up in that impairment group, So for whom this isn't a pleasant experience, for whom the voices are abusive and aggressive and attacking rather than supportive, for whom the belief is, I am going to be attacked if I leave my house, then often they have had life experiences where that makes a lot of sense. They have had higher levels of trauma. They've had higher levels of victimization, higher levels of abuse. There's a, you know, it's linked with social deprivation. It's linked with, you know, more difficult families, difficult, you know, adverse childhood events. And those are all the real predictors of experiencing that level of impairment and a later psychosis, a psychotic illness. And so actually this may have made loads of sense all the way through your life. There were people out to get you. There were people who were going to harm you. You did need to be on guard but just not in this situation. And you've brought a very sensible, reasonable way of thinking into a situation actually that's safe and boring and and not. That is the best behavior to survive a bad situation. If you're in a particularly traumatic situation, having high amounts of anxiety and, and having the constant assumption that you are at risk will absolutely benefit you going forward. It absolutely, if you're in that situation, absolutely. And then it's like taking someone out of that situation and putting them into a very peaceful situation 
if that person has very little experience in that situation, how can you expect them to not think that way? And is that pathological? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Is pathological at that point just saying you don't fit how we live in society's norms? I'm very relaxed. Why aren't you? And I think this is the idea around, you know, and, and we have to hold two bits that actually this is deeply philosophical. And you know, where is pathology in drawing those lines? And then you'll also may have someone who's deeply in distress. So they're walking into the shops and they're seeing the shops as dangerous. Someone else is walking to the shops and it's just Tesco, you know, and they're just doing their shopping. And both things are true at the same time. But for the person who can't go shopping, this, you know, that's a really hard life to live. And so, Actually, maybe that person it doesn't necessarily need to be labeled as pathological, but we can recognize that some, that person may need support. There may be a range of things that we could do that would be helpful, that would allow them to have a better quality of life, that would, you know, and, and li- live a better life. You know, there's an obligation on us in, in society to provide. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On that note, when you're approaching how someone is dealing with this, would you deal with it the same way you deal with depression? Would it be similar in a sense that I know with things like depression and anxiety, it tends to go counseling and seeing how that goes and then the medical route? Would it be a similar process? You talk to someone and then you go for medication? So typically, in terms of how services work, is, is the, in Ireland, is the opposite order. That medication has a good evidence base for reducing voices, for reducing paranoia and delusional beliefs. So there's a very strong evidence base for using medication. It has strong side effects. And so not everyone takes it or people take it and stop taking it. And a lot of people would say that it brings down those symptoms, but doesn't necessarily address the reasons that got them there. Mm. And so sometimes the psychosis is the cherry on the cake. Somehow you have to address the cake and not just the cherry. But medication, you know, is a a frontline treatment. But also then actually for the person, you know, you're you're not just treating a a symptom. You're not trying to treat paranoia. You're trying to, well, here's Andrew. This is his life. and This is where he's living. And this is what he's trying to do. And this is his job. And this is, and he's experiencing this fear that doesn't let him do it. And so, okay, actually sitting and talking through that. And there's a good evidence base for cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of emerge. There's good evidence actually just for talking that actually, you know, you having the chance to come in and tell your story to someone who's going to listen and maybe shape it a little bit, but mostly just listen. I have gone through all of this, you know, complex stuff over the last few years. Okay. You know, where do we go from there? 
there's a really strong evidence base for that. And if you think really nobody was provided with therapy up until the mid-90s, therapy has only come into psychosis really since then. So those are all, all very effective. And then all the kind of occupational therapy things, getting people back to work, getting people back into school, getting, you know, are there skills that people need? If, if they've dropped out, what do you need in order to be, to be able to be scaffolded back in? Because that's where all your meaning is going to come from. That's where all your joy is going to come from, is back doing all that stuff. So I, I, I like to talk about stuff like that often. I'm a huge fan of the approach to kind of medical interventions as being precision or stratified or for the individual. Um, I, I think there was a old quote by Hipp Hippocrates before who said, uh, we shouldn't spend our time thinking about the disease. Instead, we should think about the person in which the disease uh, cohabits and how we can treat the person to best get past the disease, as opposed to this approach of just, oh, well, their symptoms are gone. We did it, you know, because that doesn't capture it. And then we end up in a situation where uh, it's not ready to be adjusted. We could give a treatment to two people. It works perfectly for one person. It gives side effects for another. And then we're stuck with a, a new problem that needs to be addressed. But if we move towards that more individual base I think it'll both be a lot better and also people will be a lot more informed going into their own risk of getting a drug or their own uh, potential benefit. And it's interesting that you say the uh, it goes treatment first uh, in, in Ireland and perhaps that there's a great intervention there. However, just from the way things are at the moment, I can imagine that if you're dealing with people with beliefs that might be the way they are, I can't imagine the how happy they'd always be to immediately jump onto drugs. If you have a belief that someone is maybe out to get you, or maybe they're not trusting uh, people who are above them or in government or doctors or anything like that, do you, would there be a resistance, a resistance to taking a drug where you might then need the counselling? Because to why would you take it? If, if you don't believe you have an illness, why would you take a medication? I probably wouldn't. So, <laughs> to, to, to if, blunt, if, yeah. if the neighbors are bugging your house, yeah, then what you know you're looking for is a better lock yeah. on your door, yeah. And actually, albeit a very nice person, you know, who's in in your GP or in the local clinic, that 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 seems like well, yeah, that's not my issue. And so you, you get this this divergence between what the person sees as their difficulty and what the system sees is their difficulty. Mm -hmm. And different countries, and it's all relatively recent, we're talking the last decade, two decades, are better at bridging that gap. And part of that is about early intervention, is that the earlier we can intervene with somebody, the belief is less set, the, you know, a lot of the social stuff is more preserved, and that actually there's, there's a, a more of a flexibility Going, okay, well, maybe this would be helpful in this way. Whereas the longer something goes on, so the duration of untreated psychosis in Ireland on average is about four years. So if you think if you've been paranoid for four years, every day, more or less, mm -hmm. the impact of that. And so there's a huge social decline. People have cut themselves off from their friends. They've dropped out of their course. This typically happens men and it typically happens in their mid-20s. So it's all of that time when you're life building you know, people have stopped going on dates and then they're, you know, go to the doctor 
when their mom or their friends or their family kind of it's come to a crunch point and someone has really pushed them into going because, you know, there's a level of where the family can't tolerate the, the collapse anymore. In that, you, you said there that early intervention is so important. And I've, I hear that a lot for a lot of obvious reasons with a lot of disorders and a lot of diseases. It's so important to get in front. But it'd be really useful for a lot of people, not just with, for psychosis, but for a lot of mental health, if you could talk about just the, the value of taking that step early as opposed to late and what the differences are. Like what's, what, what are the, the differences in someone, someone early as opposed to late and when you're trying to maybe get out of it again. So what what's what's the benefit there? Well, I, I think that the difference is everything. Okay. okay. <laughs> Good to know. Everything every but if this is just true of all of everything is better earlier. You know, what's the best treatment for cancer is suntan lotion 30 years ago, you know. Yeah, yeah. What's you know, don't get the skin cancer. This is a little bit the same that the longer it goes on, then the heavier the intervention, the more work that has to be done, the higher the rate of relapse, the harder it is for the person to get their own quality of life back. So you sit down with a person, you know, someone in their mid-twenties, what do they want to do? So they want to go on some dates. They want to see their mates. They maybe want to go to college or get a job. And the longer somebody has been unwell and out of those things, the harder it is to do. Their friends all move on, you know. So if you, you know, start getting unwell in your early 20s, by 30, lots of the friends who are all at home at their 20 were all hanging out. There was lots of, you know, it's all good fun. By 30, you know, they're kind of hooked up and they're in apartments and they've got jobs and, you know, and not through any fault of the person, but they get left behind. There isn't a social group to go back to. And then when they're coming back into college, they're 30 and everyone else is 18 or people trying to go to work and they're retraining. Everything is harder. But actually, if those things are caught early, then it makes all the difference. So we're talking about paranoid beliefs. You know, if you're the strength of that belief is 50 percent about the neighbors rather than 100 percent, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. I'm not too sure. I'm worried about it. That makes all the difference in how you what your behavior is going to be like. Um, so in terms of therapy being effective, it makes a huge difference. In terms of the, the amount of medication that might be needed, it's much less. So the side effects are much less. So the person is much less likely to stop. So the relapse is much less likely to happen. They're much less likely to have to go to hospital. And if someone does go to hospital, it's much more likely to be voluntary. And it's much more likely to be shorter. Everything that you'd want is more likely to happen if this happens early. But... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that when someone is in the early stages of this, there is absolutely nothing in their mind saying that anything is wrong. Because if the problem is outside of them and they're, it's a maybe a flawed belief in something that someone else is doing, why would they go from saying, oh, maybe I need to talk to a doctor? How would they make that jump? Because if if I had a belief that was outside of me and that someone was coming after me or that there was something going on and that things were just unfortunate around me, how would I make that connection to then to one day just saying, maybe it's me? Like that must be a tough jump in the clinic to even get people in in the first place. Because I, I think you're not trying to work it on a cognitive level. How would it feel? You'd feel stressed. Yeah. Yeah. And are you able to go to five aside on a Wednesday? 
possibly not. Possibly not. And so the quality of life starts to dip a little bit and the person feels stressed and anxious or maybe a bit depressed. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a nice feeling to have. Right. And they mightn't have quite a, you know, and this is where all those blurred lines, there's no problem in the world intervening when the thing is still blurred. That's absolutely grand yeah. from, a, from, from a medical point of view. Great, yeah. you know, isn't a fully solid psychosis yet? Grand, yeah. no. But for the person, they start to feel anxious. They start to feel stressed. Maybe their sleep goes, all of those kind of general things, but they're not happy. Right. No one's pleased that, you know, they might not know quite what it is that's going on, but they're not happy. You know, it's not adding to their happiness. So I think it's getting people to kind of, and the people around them to kind of recognize, look, things are having a dip. It's okay. I don't have to wait for everything to go wrong yeah. to reach out. Actually, if things are, are just not right, that's a perfectly reasonable time to try, you know, and get support for something. I think a lot of people are quite maybe too accepting of the quality of life they sometimes go through. I know a lot of people who've been in pretty like rough spots, maybe in college and stuff. And a lot of the discourse, a lot of the chat is, oh, sure, look, it's that's part of being, you know, 21. That's part of being 22. You're you're broke. You're living in a bad place. You're Of course, you're not going to feel good. Maybe people are too accepting of where their mentality goes and uh, where their ability to you know, live as full a life as they possibly can. And that's very tricky. Another part of this is trying to figure out someone's just personality. Because I suppose, like you were saying there, if you were very stressed, if you were very anxious, that's how it would maybe manifest and that's how you would end up talking about it. But I'm sure there's people who who have these experiences, but they're not too fussed. They just believe it. And then in that situation, even though they have all of the symptoms, they have all of the thoughts that aren't true and all of this. But the fact that they're grand with it means it's not pathological. It's just their personality. And so I've done lovely work in the past between people who have lots of unusual beliefs. And often these are kind of spiritualist beliefs. So it might be around auras and angels and those kind of things. But have a whole network and community to understand it with, find it very helpful and, you know, supportive themselves and you have I've had just great conversations with people and you're just saying okay those are unusual beliefs but th- th- those will never come near a clinic it's not it's not needed because there is no dip in, in functioning they're happy they're in a community and have a very supportive way of understanding the perceptions that they may have so I've had really nice people who've read my aura and seen different aspects of me that I can't see yeah mm-hmm. great but I think it comes back to, well, what's your own unhappiness? If you're feeling unhappy, if your quality of life is dipping, if you're not able to go to five aside on a Wednesday, well, then there's something up. And you mightn't quite know what that is yet, but actually that's worth exploring. That's worth trying to work out with somebody else. And in that, do you think that the way we look at mental health in general is going to move away from these titles of these diseases and these, you know, conditions and trying to pin down a diagnosis and rather to look at someone's quality of life and to see how that can be improved instead. Because at a certain point, uh, maybe you could have a more fine-tuned medication, but at a certain point from listening, maybe I'm wrong, a lot of it at the end of the day is just trying to improve someone's quality of life. 
And a lot of the symptoms that we're talking about are human traits that may just be inflicting damage on someone's life. So do you think we're moving away from trying to maybe tick every box in the DSM-5 to say this person has this as opposed to this and actually move towards this wider, more spectral look at mental health in general? I, I think it's helpful to have both the categorical and, and the spectral. I think the analogy to use maybe is blood pressure. Okay. That we can have high and low blood pressure and at a relatively arbitrary point, we say, actually, your blood pressure is pathologically high. There's nothing radically different between it being slightly lower and slightly higher. But we're going, no, we need to intervene here. If we don't intervene, actually you're going to have a heart attack and die. The same with diabetes, same with a whole range of conditions where you can see that actually, no, this is a normal variation. But once we get to a certain point, it's very useful uh, in terms of services and society go, okay, this is the line that we're drawing. Mm -hmm. It could be drawn slightly lower, it could be drawn slightly higher, but it's very useful to have a line because if you stay in this space, actually it's, it's, it's going to be really negative and we need to utilize any of the services that we have, any of the treatments that we have to help that person move out of that space. And so I, I think if we go too spectrumy, then everything's grand. Mm. But actually for people at the upper end of this, in that, you know, impairment group, it's anything, this is a really severe illness it really impacts people's life it impacts it really young it's a relapsing disorder that can have for lifelong as a high risk of suicide you know it increases people's risk of not being able to get a job not being able to get employment not being able to have independent living so if you're staying in that space for too long then a lot of negative things can happen and it's okay to have a line that goes no actually (laughs) we need to ring the alarm bell now actually we need to act Okay, that makes sense. So it's more like a, uh, it's a cutoff. It's a point of saying, at this point, we're concerned. It's not necessarily saying, as someone in your position, you're not necessarily saying you only consider this person to have this mental health condition. Once they reach that point, you could definitely have symptoms of it. But once you reach a point of concern, then you have to start really taking into consideration what interventions are at play. And otherwise, everyone would fall somewhere on each of these spectrums at different points. And there is a limit to how much support people can get. We, At the end of the day, human beings are on the other side of that support. It's not an infinite amount of counsellors and psychologists and psychiatrists that can look at every single person needed. There has to be a cutoff point. Though, on that, I would not want to be the person who has to set that cutoff point. Because I can imagine, depending on how each country can deal with it, it could move. And I think COVID is a really good example of that, that the the amount of intensive care beds in the country determines the entire social policy for two years. And actually, if we had, you know, 100 more beds, we would have had a very different outcome. So, you know, a lack of resources is often the reason why there's a poor outcome for people rather than something intrinsic to themselves. And for people who are below that cutoff, all of the good things about good mental health still apply. (laughs) Stress management, mindfulness, exercise, diet, you know, know, social contact, all of the stuff that we know is good for us. Those will all be really helpful things, even though 
we haven't, you know, we don't have to reach a cutoff to start doing good stuff. And so I think that's part of the mind shift that we all need to get to. We don't have to have crippling anxiety. We don't have to have a level of psychosis that's impairing to start doing good stuff. That might be where services step in, but actually we can resource ourselves an awful lot prior to that. A lot of that comes down to maybe how poorly people were educated in their own upkeep, because we're very, um, we respond to a fire as opposed to maintain the garden, if you know what I mean. You know, um, if we're anxious, then we need a holiday. <laughs> if we're stressed, yeah. then we need a holiday, as opposed to just trying to keep yourself having these trips away so you never end up in a situation of burnout or things like that. And uh, I, I'm definitely guilty of that. I, I have an awful trend of working, 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 working. And then 10 months later, I'm cooked for two months. And I just have two months where no matter what I do, I just need to get wait through it until I'm on the other side of it and then I can work again. But I think so much of that might come down to we weren't. Sorry, one second. Ice cream truck outside. <laughs> one second. I... Oh, 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 no, 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 no. We need to include the ice cream truck in the podcast. That's the healthiest thing that's come, that's, come that's along. That, you know, that's hour. joy that comes to your door. We need more of that exactly. in mental health. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, the point I, I'm getting at slowly but surely is that I think, like you're saying, things like diet, things like exercise, things like socializing, thing, doing those things is so good for our mental health. But I don't think when people are growing up and I don't think adults now are being exposed to enough of this information of saying how important it is. Because like you were saying, early intervention is great, but nothing beats prevention. Not, nothing beats that at all. And what, that's what we're talking about when we say, look after your diet, look after your weight, make sure you see your family, make sure you have time for your friends. That is prevention. And we say prevention like, oh, we're trying to just get away from that. That's also how we try to stay happy. That's how we try to get it's a, nice life. a good life, you know. <laughs> but I don't think that's the way. I suppose there might be a, a cultural question to ask there because like well, – I know with my generation, we're like, what's a nice life? Well, hopefully we'll have a house before we're 40 and a family and all that. But we don't put enough emphasis on the day to day, you know, and I think we should do a lot more emphasis on the day to day. So you said, sorry, I'm making a list here. Diet, exercise, <laughs> friends, family. Am I missing anything? Like, uh, I, I need to make this in my calendar. <laughs> But I think, and I think it is one of the benefits of COVID is people started talking about this. A much wider group of people recognized their mental health was, you know, was vulnerable. And so sea swimming became the national conversation. But actually, okay, what works for you? What do you need? And you need it now, not later. And it doesn't matter, you know, what it is. It's sea swimming for some people and it's friends for others. And it's, you know, that actually we're starting all of that really early on. And and that pattern that you describe of working for 10 months, crashing for two, there's lots of people who get caught in that. And there's a real, remember, that's not coming part of it, it's internal, but there's a social pressure of junior cert, leaving cert, degree, job market, housing, you know, that pushes people to work like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he pulled an all-nighter is seen as a, you know, a, a good thing. Oh yeah, you know, you know, it's a sign of strength rather than actually, no, I'm doing myself damage and I can do this for a few years and then I won't be able to do it. This is more of a general conversation on, on, on mental health and good mental mm-hmm. health rather than specifically to psychosis. Yes. 
But that, that, oh, that sense of overwork is often praised rather than recognized as actually that's long-term damaging. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree. And I suppose just on that, the last thing I, I do want to quickly chat about is if you're advising people on the best way that they could look at themselves and think about this, not necessarily that they're in a position of with dealing with an issue or dealing with a stress or dealing with something going on, but just in a day-to-day, something they can do to kind of be conscious of it, I suppose, be aware of their quality of life, be aware of where their stresses are coming from. Would you have any advice for people? Because I honestly, I, I really think a lot of people, especially in my age group, the kind of or I'm going to be generous and say 18 to 30 kind of gap. I don't think we're informed enough. And I see a lot of things going on in schools that are great, but I don't think we're informed enough. So what would you say to, to people in this age group for kind of looking after themselves? What's a step they could take? So and I think I'll shape it particularly around psychosis because it's the podcast. And this is the age group mm. that it happens. The, the first decline, the first episode, average age is 24, two out of you know three are men. So it's not a group that looks after itself. <laughs> it's yeah. not necessarily a group that's, you know, uh, mental health you know, inclined. And that actually having an awareness, okay, how am I? What's happened to me in my life? What am I putting myself through or what's been done to me? And am I okay? And that it, it's okay to have the answer that I know actually things are, this isn't right. You know, I have I had a thought or a feeling that I kind of know isn't, that's not right. I don't know what it is. I don't, you know, I don't need to know the label for it, but it, that doesn't sit right with me. And that we can have, start to build an awareness of that in ourselves. Typically people go off and they smoke weed or have a drink and that's how they cope with that. I had this odd feeling and I made it go away. But actually go sitting with that and go, no, actually, I need to do something else with this. And that we're not alone. We have our mates. There's five or six people that we probably know. And we probably know very, very well, better than they know themselves, when one of them is off. And, you know, not just for a night, but actually, you know, (laughs) Sean has been right for a while. There's something going on. And yet I think we often treat that with silence. Yeah. I think we often treat that, treat that with pints. You know, we talk about the Champions League. We talk about anything about actually, you know, the thing. Actually allowing ourselves, no, maybe I do something. I'm going, I'm going to have some unusual experiences in my life. There's nothing actually that unusual about experiencing something unusual. And someone in my circle will. If I know eight people, somebody will. So allowing them and creating, you know, the, that's okay to talk about. And the transformation in the last 20 years is we've allowed that for lots of stuff. And we can allow it for unusual experiences and paranoia and suspicion too. There's no reason that they get excluded. Um, they're very normal reactions to abnormal events. I think that's a brilliant place to close. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think it was r- really, really interesting. Um, I certainly came into it knowing very little about the reality of things like psychosis and where they fit into the mental health network. And thank you also for so much of the positive talk towards the end. Very useful for a lot of people. I know 100% a lot of people listening to this will absolutely benefit from it just like I did. So thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 